tape number nine. Elmo Leonard is a speaker. There's about a 10 second uh, pause where everybody's coughing, so please just fast forward for about three seconds and it will continue. Sorry for the inconvenience and thank you very much. A wonderful uh, uh, column about him the other day, just listed some of the things that happened. And this is another kind of encouragement for writers that good books never die, they just get converted sooner or later into television uh, uh, and, and the movies. For example, Prado uh, uh, is being made for Showtime down on Miami Beach with Peter Falk, Glenn Headley, and, and uh, directed by Jim McBride. Gold Coast is being done for sh Showtime, that was written in the late 70s. Uh, La Brava from 1983 is being produced by Walter Mirisch out at Universal. Uh, Maximum Bob will be made for ABC. Uh, uh, adapted by Scott Franklin, who I'll talk about in a minute, and Barry Simonfeld, who did get shorty, will direct that as well. Unknown Man number 89 will be made by Mandalay Features. Uh, Touch MGMUA, I think that's already pretty much done by Paul Schrader with Bridget Fonda and uh, Tom Arnold and uh, a cast of uh, many. And uh, uh, <laughs> Tom Selleck uh, is going to do Last Stand at Saber River. Uh, for TNT, and out of sight, uh, the next Elmore Leonard novel due out in August uh, is going to be made again by the, the team that did get Shorty, uh, Mr. Simonfeld, to direct, Scott Frank to adapt, and Elmore uh, uh, is now working on his next novel called Cuba Libra. So, and uh, with him uh, is the, the man <coughs> who did the script of Get Shorty, Scott Frank, uh, who is from Northern California but went to CSB. He's really a protege of Paul Lazarus. Uh, was with Paul for four years, uh, wrote his first uh, his script, uh, not his first script that was made, but he, he wrote, I think, Little Man Tate while he was at US, UCSB, which became a movie directed by Jodie Foster. Uh, he also wrote a, a wonderful movie, I thought, called Dead Again, which was directed by Kenneth Branagh, and uh, Malice, another terrific film, Heaven's Prisoners, uh, from the novel by James Lee Burke. Uh, I think the outcome was a little bit disappointing to him and everybody else, but. I thought it was, uh, you know, a, a very terrific uh, try, which was directed by Phil Joanna, who was Mr. Scott Frank's brother-in-law. So there you are, and uh, it's all nepotism, you know, <laughs> a likely story. Uh, anyway, uh, it's a wonderful chance for us to to, to hear the, uh, the the novelist and the adapter talk, because I think that uh, Dutch Leonard's success, oftentimes his movies as westerns. 310 to Yuma and others have been made in the films with somewhat mixed results, but this apparently Get Shorty was a film that was just ecstatically received by Mr. Leonard as well as by millions of, of viewers. And uh, uh, Mr. Leonard had a wonderful idea of just talking about how adaptation works. He wants to read a passage from Get Shorty and then we'll sh show a clip as to how it, how it looked when it got made. So here is Mr. Leonard reading from Get Shorty. <coughs> Is this on? Is this, uh, okay. Uh, in the, this is a scene in which uh, Chili Palmer meets, uh, it's not Michael where it's what? It's Michael in the book. Yeah, but what's it in the movie? Uh, Martin Weir, uh, played by Danny DeVito. And uh, in the book, they meet at a place on Hollywood Boulevard called Raji's, a uh, rock and roll joint where in the basement, a girl that Chili 
used to know from Florida, who is now uh, Michael Weir, uh, Martin Weir's girlfriend, uh, she's playing in this band. And this is how Chili is going to get to Michael Weir or Martin Weir and try and talk him into uh, appearing in a movie that that Chili now is uh, is a, is one of the producers of, and he sees her with these with these rockers, and um, he he didn't he doesn't recognize her because they all look like girls to him, and and um, but then she he sees that it's really is she. Um, Oh, here it is. Okay. It was Nicole, Nikki. They all look like girls. That's why he thought she was a guy. Nikki, how you doing? He should have spotted her. The skinny white arms, no tattoos. Nikki handed her guitar that had a big bullseye painted on it to one of the guys and was coming over now. Nikki in black jeans that were like tights on her. And Christ, big work boots, smiling at him. Chili put his arms out as she raised hers high and saw dark hair under there in the sleeveless t-shirt. Nikki saying, Chili, Jesus, glad to see him. And it was a nice surprise, knowing she meant it. Now she was in his arms, that slender body tight against him, arms around his neck giving him a hug, hanging on, while they kept thinking of her armpits. The, <laughs> the dark tufts under there like a guy's, though she certainly felt like a girl. <laughs> Nikki let go but kept grinning at him saying, I don't believe this. Then, then saying over her shoulder to the guys, I was right. It's Chili from Miami. He's a fucking gangster. <laughs> so they sit down and he asks her uh, how she came to uh, meet uh, Martin Weir. She says, let's have a cigarette, Chili says, sitting at the table with her now. I wasn't sure you'd recognize me. You kidding? You're the only guy at Momo's didn't try to jump me. It crossed my mind a few times. Yeah, but you didn't make a big deal over it like Tommy. I had to beat him off with a stick. She reached across the table to put her hand on his. What are you doing here anyway? And he says, I'm making a movie. So then he, he tells her, she tells him how she met uh, Michael Weir <coughs> at a performance. I was with a metal group, Roadkill. They're still around. They try to sound, they try to sound like Metallica, straight ahead rock with a lot of head banging. I had to... I had to fucking sing and throw my hair at the same time, only it was shorter then, so I had to wear extensions. I, rem I remember thinking, this was about a year and a half ago, if only I was a light-skinned black chick, I could make it on my voice, not have to do this shit. <laughs> Michael saw you perform. I guess he was in a particular mode at the time. Nikki tapped her cigarette over the ashtray, maybe giving it some thought. Sees me up there thrashing this chicken geek wear shit kicker's hair under my arms. He still won't let me shave. I guess it, I guess I feel some need. He works, I work, and in between we kick back. We do drugs, but not all the time. I wouldn't call either of us toxic. We play tennis, we have a screening room, a satellite dish, 12 TV sets, 17 phones, a houseman, maids, a laundress, gardeners, a guy who comes twice a week to check out the cars. But what am I really? Down in a basement with a sticky floor and three guys barely out of Hollywood High. I feel like I'm their mother. <laughs> well, finally, uh, her boyfriend comes. The actor comes. 
and uh, they start to talk and Ch Chili leaned into the table saying, you might not remember, but we met uh, one time before. He gave the movie star time to look over. In Brooklyn, when you were making the cyclone, that movie, Michael said, you know, I had a feeling we'd met. I couldn't quite put my finger on, on it, the occasion. Chill, is it? Chili Palmer. We met, it was at a club on 86th in uh, Bensonhurst. You dropped by, you wanted to talk some of the... You wanted to talk to some of the guys. Sure, I remember it very well, Michael said, turning his chair around to the table. You were, I guess you were seeing what it was like to be one of us, Chili said, locking his eyes on the movie stars the way he looked at a slow pay, a guy a week or two behind. <laughs> yeah, to listen uh, more than anything else. Is that right? Uh, pick up your rhythms of speech. We talk different? Well, different in that... The way you speak is based on an attitude, the movie star said, leaning in with an elbow on the table now and running his hand through his hair. Chili could see him doing it on the screen, acting natural. It's like your tone of voice, the movie star said, putting on an accent. Uh, says, where are you coming from? Then back to his normal voice that had a touch of New York in it anyway, saying, I don't uh, mean where you're from geographically, I'm referring to attitude, your tone, your speech patterns demonstrate a certain confidence in yourselves, in your opinions, your indifference to conventional views, like we don't give a shit. More than that, it's a laid back attitude, but with an intimidating edge, cut and dried, no bullshit, your way is the only way it's gonna be. Well, you had it down cold, Chili said, watching you in the movie, if I didn't know better, I'd have to believe you were a made guy and not acting. I mean, you became that fucking guy. Even the Fink part, Chili said, laying it on now. I never met a Fink, and I hope to God I never do. But how you did it must be the way Finks act. <laughs> the movies start like that, starting to nod, saying, It was a beautiful part. All I had to do was find the character's center, the stem I'd use to wind him up and he'd play. Man, he'd play. The movie star nodding with Nick's beat now, eyes half closed like he was showing how to change into somebody else, saying, Once I have the authentic sounds of speech, the rhythms, man, the patois, I can actually begin to think the way those guys do, get inside their heads. Like telling how he studied this tribe of natives in the jungles of Brooklyn. That's how it sounded to Chile. <coughs> he said, Okay, I'm one of those guys you mentioned. What am I thinking? The movie star put on an innocent look. <coughs> Excuse me. The movie star put on an innocent look first, surprised. What? Did I say something? The look gradually becoming... Uh, a nice guy smile. He ran both of his hands through his hair this time. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying an actual metamorphosis takes place. I become one of you. That wouldn't be acting. I had the opportunity one time <coughs> years ago <coughs> to ask Dame Edith Evans how she approached her parts and she said, I pretend, dear boy, I pretend. Well, I'll get involved in a certain life, observe all I can, because I want that feeling of realism, verisimilitude. But ultimately, what I do is practice my craft. I act. I pretend to be someone else. <clears throat> so you don't know what I'm thinking, Chili said, staying with it. <laughs> <coughs> 
It got another smile, a tired one. No, I don't, though I have to say I'm curious. So you want to know? If you'd like to tell me, yeah. I'm thinking about a movie. One of mine? One we're producing, and want you to be in it, Shelley said, seeing the movie star's eyebrows go up, and one of the arms, <clears throat> one of the arms in the worn-out leather jacket raising his hand as Chili tried to tell him, <coughs> it's one you already know about, you're red. But Michael wasn't listening. He was saying, wait, time out, okay? Well, he says that he doesn't, uh, he doesn't do independent uh, productions. They'd be, be all over them. And he says, what is, what is this wise guy money that you've got on, on this one? No, he and Chili said, you think I'm talking about wise guy money? No way, this one's going to be made in a studio. It brought the movie star partway back. I'm not connected to those people anymore, not since I walked out of a loan shark operation in Miami. That brought the movie star all the way back with questions in his eyes, sitting up interested in the real stuff. What happened? The pressure got, got to you? Pressure? I'm the one who applied the pressure. That's what I mean, the effect it must have had on you, what you had to do sometimes to collect. Like, ha like have some uh, asshole's legs broken? That, yeah, or some form of intimidation. Whatever it takes, Chili said, you're an actor, you like to pretend. Imagine you're the Shylock. A guy owes you 15 grand and he skips, leaves town. Yeah? What do you do? Chili watched the movie star hunch over, narrowing his shoulders. For a few moments, <coughs> he held his hands together in front of him, getting a shifty look in his eyes. Then gave it up, shaking his head. I'm doing Shylock instead of a Shylock. Okay, <coughs> okay, what's my motivation? The acquisition of money to collect, inflict pain if I have to. Michael half closed his eyes. My father used to beat me for no reason. Take the money I earned on my paper route. Then I keep that I kept in a cigar box. Hold it, Chili said. I was a Shylock. What do I look? What do I? Uh, <laughs> what do I look like? Yeah. That's right. Yeah, Michael said, staring at Chili. His expression gradually becoming deadpan, sleepy. You the Shylock now? Guy owes me 15 large and takes off. I go after him, the movie star said. The fuck you think I'd do? Try it again, Chili said. Look at me. I'm looking at you. No, I want you to look at me the way I'm looking at you. Put it in your eyes. <coughs> Put it in your eyes. You're mine, asshole, without saying it. Like this? What are you telling me? You're tired? You want to go to bed? <laughs> Wait, how about this? You're squinting like you're trying to look mean or you need glasses. Look at me. I'm thinking you're mine. I fucking own you. What I'm not doing is feeling anything about it one way or the other. You understand? You're not a person to me. You're a name in my collection book. A guy owes me money, that's all. The idea, then, the movie star says, I show complete indifference until I'm crossed. <coughs> not even then. It's nothing personal. It's business. The guy misses. He knows what's going to happen. How about this, the movie star said, giving Chili a nice dead-eyed look. That's not bad. That's what I think of you, asshole. Nothing. I believe it, Chili said. I turn it on when I confront the guy. 
Yeah, but you haven't found him yet. Chili watched the movie star wondering what he was supposed to do next, giving him a straight look. <coughs> I think that's enough that you'll, you'll get the idea of the scene. Then we can show it now and then we can talk about it. Okay. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> What's that? Is that it? Let me come out to you. Ten bucks from okay. Kitsini in a lawn chair. Talk about together with it. Kelly, you're supposed to meet me at the restaurant. I know, but look at this. It says, Mom Weir's house across the street from George Hamilton. And it's George Hamilton. Nicole. Nicole. Yes, it is you. It's Nicky now. I don't believe this. Hey. Hi, Nicky. Karen should. I won't be there. How are you? Come on, baby. Come on. Come on. You gotta meet Mike. Come on. Come on. What are you doing? Julie was the only one at Mama who didn't try to hit on me. Oh, nice. what a gentleman. Do you like my hair? Oh, nice, yeah. Push it under the arms. Martin will let me shave. Guess I feel some need. Takes him back to the 60s or something. <laughs> Speaking of the devil. Really? Yeah. Well, I'm one of those guys. What am I thinking? 
But don't get me wrong, an actual metamorphosis <coughs> doesn't take place that wouldn't be acting. So you don't know what I'm thinking? No, I don't. But I have to say I'm curious. So you want to know what I'm thinking? Yeah, if you want to tell me. I'm thinking about a movie. What am I? No, one that we're producing. With what? Wise guy money. <laughs> Maybe this wasn't such a good idea. No, no, look, Martin, I'm not connected to that anymore. Not since I looked at loan sharking operation in Miami. What's the matter? Pressure got too much for you? Pressure. I'm the one who applied the pressure. Oh, yeah? Now, Martin, can I ask you a question? Yeah. You're an actor. Actors like to pretend, right? We've been known to make believe. Pretend this. You're Shylock. Mm-hmm. Guy owes you 15 grand. He skips town, he takes off. What are you doing? Oh, Martin, for Christ's sake. Just, you know. I'm doing Shylock instead of a Shylock. Right. All right, what's my motivation? The acquisition of money, to collect, to inflict pain if I have to. Guy splits with 15 large of my money, I go after him. What the hell do you think I do? Martin, look at me. I am looking at you. Now look at me the way I'm looking at you. Put it in your eyes. You're mine, asshole, without saying it. Okay. How about this? <laughs> what are you telling me? You're sleepy? Squinting like you need glasses. Well, what do you? What do you? Look at me. What? What I'm thinking is, you're mine. I fucking own you. But what I'm not doing is feeling one way or another about it. You see, you're not a person to me. You're an entry in my book. That's all. You're just the guy who owes me money. for Las Vegas. How do I know that? Because his wife told you. Oh, his wife told me. Okay. <coughs> so the wife sues the animal. This is some gutsy babe. Good looking, too. Like Karen. So when do I meet up with the husband and, and give him the look? Ah, that's not so simple. Because a mob guy, real hard on. You owe him money. And he's after you. wants to take you out because you broke his nose and shot him. Right, right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> at this point, basically, that's got to be it. I mean, that's all you're going to tell me? Well, actually, Martin, the reason we came by was to talk about Mr. Lovejoy. We understand that you read the script, that you loved it, you flipped. Mm-hmm. Refresh my memory. Yeah, Mr. Lovejoy, <coughs> good. I'll call Buddy and set for me. Who's Buddy? Welcome, he's agent. Karen knows him. But you aren't. Yeah, I'm intrigued. You know what might help you if you take a little of the cycle? It's the way a visual fabric is maintained while the metaphor plays on different levels. Ah. <laughs> Hey, Chili, is this your ride? Yeah, yeah, I'd like to sit up high and check everything out. I mean, it is a Cadillac of minivans. Oh. Yeah, check this out. That really worked. <laughs> wow. You mind if I take it for a spin? 
Do you have an out point on this? Scott Frank, how did you come to be involved with Mr. Leonard? And uh, what was your first meeting like, I guess? <laughs> uh, I think you turn on the mic, just flip up that little button on the back. There you got it. Yeah. Okay. In Jersey Films, uh, the producer of this film was a woman named Stacy Sher, who Great. called me uh, some, I guess, three years ago now, I guess, and yeah. had known I was a big fan of all of his books. And they had just acquired Get Shorty. And in fact, um, it's kind of a funny story how they got the book. Barry Sonnenfeld, the director, was going on a cruise, and he had bought uh, a, a um, Tom Clancy novel to take with him on the cruise. And he panicked while he was waiting to get on the boat because he thought to himself, I'm going to be on this boat for three weeks. What if I hate this book? <laughs> so he went to the little stand of books they had there at the port, and he bought Get Shorty. And uh, he read Get Shorty on the boat, and he called Danny DeVito, whom he'd worked with before on Throw Mama from the Train. He was actually Danny's cinematographer on that film. He called him up and he said, I just read the best book. I want to make this movie. You have to get it. It's called Get Shorty. It's, it's incredible. You have to read this book. And I don't know if it's available. I don't know what the rights are, but check it out. And uh, he got back from the cruise and he called Danny and he said, um, have you, did, did, you, did you read the book? And Danny said, yeah, I bought it. He said, no, did you read it? He goes, no, I just bought it. I own it. I own it the whole the rights. <laughs> and he hadn't even read the book yet. And... Um, so he, he eventually did read the novel, but Stacy had <laughs> I hadn't read it, and, and it was one of the only books that I hadn't read yet. And I was on a plane to New York. Stacy sent me a copy of the book, and I got on a plane to New York, and I got to page <coughs> 62, where this drug dealer tells this loan shark how easy it is to write a script. And I grabbed the phone off the back of the seat in front of me and called Stacy Sher and I said, I'll do this. <laughs> and um, that's the way it happened. We literally decided to go and, and begin adapting the novel. And our, our first meeting was, we had lunch. And I said, you know, do you want to be involved at all? And you said, not really. <laughs> and I asked if why you don't write any of your own screenplays anymore. And you said, it's work. <laughs> so basically we talked about the book. And Elmore proceeded to tell me for the entire two-hour lunch about a dozen horror stories about how all his movies had been screwed up and this movie and that one just worse than the other. And I got home and I said to my wife, I don't want to be another horror story. It's someone else's lunch. <laughs> um, I, don't, don't, I don't want to screw this up. And I've been such a fan of his books for years, and I'd always been so disappointed in the way they turned out, or hadn't even been made. And I, I remember when I first, it was about 11 years ago now, when I first got my first job in Hollywood, and I was trying to, to find a book to adapt. I really wanted to do an Elmore Leonard novel, and I began chasing them all down. And it was horrifying to me to find out what, what had happened to them. For example, Unknown Man Number 89, which is my favorite book, had been retitled Happy Hour. And to the best of what I could tell reading the script, as far as I got, it was a musical. <laughs> or Almost. <laughs> Almost. It was about a... One more rewrite, it would have right, been a it was about, it, The novel was about a process server, and the, the movie was about, a, I think, a piano player, a lounge... Some cocktail lounge, piano player. Cocktail piano player. So I, I couldn't believe it. Yeah, but I wrote it. 
<laughs> the script. And he did a really good job. <laughs> so I'd always been interested in the novels, and I'd wanted to do it, and I'd, I'd told anyone who would listen to me, I wanted to do Gold Coast, and I remember the producer of Gold Coast at the time told me I didn't have enough edge as a screenwriter to adapt Gold Coast. So I waited some, it was four years after that when Stacy finally called and, and offered me the book. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, that, that scene that we just saw uh, had such a ring of truth about it that I have a feeling that you might at some point have, have looked in on the shooting of one of your films and, and met an actor like that and so that there was some sort of... No. No? I've never, no. The only time... <laughs> The only time, the, before that, the only set I had been on was um, the Moonshine War. And my only contact with the actors was uh, um, that Irish actor, uh, McGowan. McGowan walks off the set and he walked right up to me and he said, What's it like to stand there and hear your lines all fucked up? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I said, huh, you know, I just said something dumb, like, when you're writing books, you have months to think of, of rejoinders, you know, and at the time, you just say, huh. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Scott, then you, you just went off for a while and, and right, right. It, it's, you know, you have a feeling that this is probably delusive, that the movie writes itself because it's, it's a very cinematic book, I think, yeah. Right, there are even scenes in the book where the character is thinking about them in terms of a, a screenplay, he's seeing them play out as a screenplay. And I really thought that this was gonna be just easy, that I was gonna get paid, you know, a bunch of money to type up the book. And, um, in, in fact, my, what I did to adapt the book is I, I bought one of those, uh, fluorescent colored highlighter pens, those blue highlighter pens, and I was, went through the novel highlighting everything I knew had to be in the movie. And the problem was I got to the last page of the book and I highlighted the whole damn book. <laughs> the whole book was fluorescent blue. So I thought, well, maybe there's a way to actually, this is the first time I'd adapted anything, I thought maybe there's a way to actually have everything in the movie. So I went back and started writing the screenplay and I had the first, the, my draft for myself was as long as the book. <laughs> it was 200 some odd pages. So, and I also realized reading it that if you take the book and you just sort of turn it into a screenplay, what you end up with is a really stupid version of the book. You have to, at some point, you know, put it through your own point of view. You have to really turn it into a movie and you have to, to a degree, make it your own. And so I went back and I really started looking at, at what what the story was about and thinking about what movie I wanted to tell because in the book there are really I think three movies and I wanted to pick the story that that the film would be and for example in the novel there's this whole subplot where Chili Palmer and uh, Karen Flores actually go to the studio and have pitch meetings with the this woman head of the studio <coughs> uh, Michael Weir comes with them to the studio and there's all this great inside stuff about Hollywood movie studios and I thought the player had just come out, and I thought that that had already done that so well that Get Shorty shouldn't be an insider's point of view, it should be a fan's point of view. That's really what, what this is, a guy who's such a movie fan who wants to make a movie. So all that stuff fell out. And then I began really thinking about the minor characters and how much 
how much of them you can keep. Um, there's all in his books, as you know, every minor character is incredible. They're wonderful and they have lots of scenes and, and you can't get enough of them. The problem is if I'm just telling one story in the movie, I have to decide which characters I can spend a lot of time on and which characters I can't. And as a result, it would continue to get shorter. And I began to kind of rework, rework the script and I would cut out too much at a certain point and I would put it back and kind of find, find the movie that way. And the real trick was his dialogue and characters are so specific, there's such a specific voice there that you can never paraphrase or it sounds like it. You have to either cut it all out or find a way to edit within the speeches so it sounds like you haven't touched it. And that was really the trick because there's so much dialogue, it's very hard to, to make a reasonable, reasonable screenplay that's not 200 pages long. And the clip you just saw is a really good example of this kind of condensing. In, in the second or third draft of the script, there are about 12 drafts done of this all in. And early on, uh, the scene was at Raji's. Laid out, I wrote the scene there, you met um, Nikki. It was very similar to, to what, you, what you heard Elmore read. The problem was, as I cut the script down, there were only going to be a couple of scenes with Michael Weir. Um, I couldn't have him in the movie as much as I wanted to, so I really needed to res make it resonate. And Raji's is more about Nikki than it is Michael Weir, so I moved it to his house, because I thought with great set design and certain things you could tell a lot about the character, like you don't have to have her talk about the gardeners and all that, you could just see what that house is like. And then we had a really funny set designer who had that painting done of Danny, <laughs> which, you know, helped a lot. Um, and then the focus of the scene, I wanted to have all that great dialogue that he read at the beginning about Nikki, and there just isn't room for it. At a certain point, you realize, as he was reading, it's, it's about a 15-minute scene, if you write out. It's a 15-page scene in screenplay. For a little longer. And the scene has to be five pages. Five-minute, six-minute scene. So what do you cut? So you have to focus on him teaching the look. And everything becomes about... The whole Thanks. focus of the scene is they're there to pitch the movie to him, and you want to have the great moment where he teaches him the whole look. That's the point of the scene. Anything else had to fall out, unfortunately. And there were a lot of instances where you would look at a scene and you would decide what it's about, and then you would have to cut. And oftentimes you're cutting things that are wonderful, because as you know, his novels are pretty much an embarrassment of riches. Did you ever get stuck at a point where you consulted with, with Dutch about what you were going to do? Did you ever have conversations during the, the making of the script? Yeah, or I would, sometimes I would tell him what I'm doing. I would say, I'm thinking of doing this or doing that. And I could hear in his voice, yeah, uh-huh. No, that's probably a bad idea. <laughs> um, there has been more of that with the new one, yeah. with the uh, Out of Sight, which, um, what, you're on your second second draft? Right, right. I call the new one, I called him a lot more. On this one, uh, I worked mostly with Stacy Sher actually. We did most of the drafts were Chiang. <coughs> yeah. Uh, why do you think you, there was so much trouble on the earlier ones? I mean, it, it just seems to me that so many of the books just see, cry to be made into movies, and yet they've they've tended to be jammed I, up a lot. I think they were taken too seriously, and I think uh, I think. I think there was too much acting in them. I think they were they were miscast to, to certainly to some degree, and the actors were always reacting to one another. 
letting you know what's funny and what isn't. And, and they weren't funny. I don't know why they weren't, but they were not funny. And uh, the first time I talked to Barry on the phone, I said, um, I read a script of one of mine, it was uh, Bandits, a, a script that uh, Bruce Willis had sent me, asking me what I thought of it. And uh, there's a scene in which one character says to another, and it's in its apropos of something that's just gone on, he said, do you know that every 16 seconds in the United States a woman is physically abused? And the other fellow shakes his head and he says, geez, he says, you wouldn't think that many get out of line. <laughs> and, <coughs> and that's the way it is. And in the book, they just continue talking. In the script, he says it, and he grins, and he winks. And I explained to, to Bruce Willis, I said, no, 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 this is his mentality. He's, he's serious. And you don't want any, so I told this to Barry, you know, he said, don't worry. I said, don't let the actors react to one another. They're serious. They're all dead serious. And that's, that's the way it was played. Yeah. Uh, you, uh, I remember when you were here, I guess this is your, maybe your third or fourth visit here, isn't it? Third, yeah. Third visit. And I remember that one of the times uh, you, you told that you started writing, you would get up and write from five to seven in the morning and then go off and write commercials for Chevy trucks or something. Yeah. And you were doing westerns then, I think. Yeah, it? westerns. Yeah. Because there was such a marvelous market for westerns in the 50s. There, you could sell a western to every magazine, I think, except the women's magazines. And then and there were so many westerns um, movies being made. But then finally, uh, there were by the end of the 50s, there were more than 30 westerns on prime time, and that killed the western market. So then I moved over to uh, crime. <laughs> and it was happily ever after. <laughs> uh, uh, Scott, but what what made you decide that what you wanted to do was write films? Well, I think uh, as a kid, I, I watched a lot of movies, and I would come home, and I would I would always be able to to recite them. I would know every line. I would remember everything. But it wasn't until um, we were talking about this earlier, I saw Dog Day Afternoon. I was, I was sitting in the movie theater and there were two remarkable things for me about that movie that changed my life. And one thing was there's no music in that movie, there's no score at all. There's a, an Elton John song over the titles, I think, and then that's it. The rest is done sort of like a documentary without any music. And the other thing was the way, despite that, the audience reacted to this movie based purely on the characters and the writing and what was happening. That was it. And I remember looking around me in the theater as he's chanting Attica, and the audience is applauding and chanting and saying, Go, Sonny, all this stuff happening like they're there in the street. And I thought to myself, what a great feeling it must be for this guy, Frank Pearson, who wrote this, to sit in the back of the theater and watch these people do that. And I, I remember it like it was yesterday. That was, was I said, if I write one film like that at one point in my life, that would be great. So. Great. Yeah. Uh, you also said something that I, I, I love from the previous meeting. You said when you read over your, your, your manuscript, if you come to a page that, that sounds like writing, you tear it out. <laughs> oh, that, yes. I try not to, uh, I don't want my writing to look like writing. I want you to, I mean, that is, I don't want the reader to be aware of this having been written. 
because I don't write in that omniscient author uh, method that with with a, such a facility with with, with language that <clears throat> you're interested in how I tell the story. Well, I, I wouldn't be very good at that. I don't feel that I'm that good at uh, narration. So I write always from a point of view. And I, and I don't use any words that my characters uh, wouldn't use or, or wouldn't know. So that I'm, I don't ever want to get between you and, uh, and the story. I don't use uh, similes. I, I do use images, uh, imagery to some extent, but I'm really not aware of it because I think it can be distracting. I think similes especially are distracting when you're reading them. You picture the simile rather than uh, the tarantula on the piece of angel food cake. Mr. Chandler's famous line, that's right. But I wasn't inspired by Raymond Chandler, so I can say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm not very good at uh, similes and metaphors anyway, so I don't use them. Well, you, uh, and you apparently, <coughs> you really write from character, I gather. You, you oh, don't, yeah. You don't have a, a, an elaborate outline mm -hmm. of where you're going to go from point C to point D. Yeah, because I, I, I feel that, it, I, I read something in the New Yorker this week. It's a letter from uh, uh, Walker Percy to um, the Civil War, uh, Civil War buff, uh, Shelby Foote. And, and he tells Shelby in the letter what he's doing. And the third thing he's doing, he's writing a novel. And he said, if I were to tell you what it's about, it would be a lie. He said, because as you know, what it's about is the telling of it. And that's the way I feel about uh, writing books, because I don't know what they're going to be about. And uh, I make them up as I go along. And I, I know that there's always a way to end a book. Uh, and there's always... I just start writing, and uh, I have to slow down in the middle and start to plot a little bit. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and I get through it that way. And to me, what is most satisfying to me are the characters and how they interact and the, and the surprising things that they do, or the, uh, the very, very minor character who comes along and all of a sudden I can't keep him out of the book, and he becomes a turning point of the plot, or someone I think was going to be so important. And uh, he, in the first scene, I think of the, the opening scenes as auditions. In his, his first scene with, with another character, the other character is a lot more fun to write. So he takes the place of this guy as an importance in the book, and this guy becomes a drunk. Just hangs around. <laughs> they tend to do that when they lose their parts. <laughs> so I just have a good time putting it together like that. Okay, let's go out here for some questions. We got a little time. Here. So, uh, either just direct them to where they want to go. Yes, over here. Uh, I noticed in the uh, clip that you ran the camera panned to the woman's face to get a comment on Danny DeVito's efforts and how flaky it was. Because in the book, you're inside Chili and you get his sarcasm. In the film, they used her to convey that. Was that something that you wrote into the script? Or? Let me uh, uh, try to repeat the question if I can. Uh, in, the, in the clip, uh, you cut away to the woman's face to get a reaction to, to Chili, I guess, right? And in the book, you're with Chili and I just wondered whether that was 
change in your script? How, how did that work? Yeah, um, some of that is directorial, but a lot of that was we realized that in the new version of the screenplay that Karen is not in the movie. I mean, once I cut out the uh, Hollywood subplot, she became in the novel a studio executive and was working at the studio where they were going to pitch the movie. So I had to rethink what happened to her at the beginning of the story. And I needed her to be a part of it, to help of having set up this meeting. I needed her to be there. Otherwise, there are no scenes with her, uh, between her and Chili. And there are no scenes sort of of her seeing Chili at work, because all of those scenes in the book are at the Hollywood studio. So that's why I wrote her into the scene. As far as using her reaction shot, the way it's, it, they cut to her a couple of times as well. Um, I think directorially it was sort of a way of reinforcing maybe the attitude of the scene a little bit. <coughs> Do you prowl around town looking for one character and then go from there? Do you prowl around town looking for one character and go from there? Or do you find your people? No, I don't prowl around. They're, they're just there. You know, you don't have to go look for them. Because uh, people ask me, what do you do? You hang out? You hang out in bars or what? In uh, prison reception rooms? <laughs> no. But I, I, I get letters from inmates and they, they wonder where I come from. Uh, one, one inmate said, uh, uh, we think that you're either, you've either done time or you're, or you're black or both. <laughs> but I haven't. I wondered as a fan of Mr. Leonard's work if you were nervous about taking certain artistic license and also did you get inside Mr. Leonard Penn and try to think the way that he thinks? Good question. Uh, questions to Scott Frank. Well, you're such an admirer uh, of, you know, Mr. Leonard. Uh, was that, I guess, intimidating a little bit? And did you try to get inside Mr. Leonard's head and think like him? I, I would give anything to be able to think like him. <laughs> <laughs> um, no. Uh, the thing that he does that's so helpful is even if you're inventing new scenes in the, in the office where he completely screws it up and uh, Ray Bones ends up beating him up pretty badly. But you can see him doing that. You can see in the book the wheels sort of turning, well, if this guy isn't going to help me, maybe this guy would help me. And there are a lot of instances like that where you kind of, you can just infer a great deal from what he's, a great deal from what he's given you. And, and it's a matter of just trying your best to squeeze more juice out of it and hope that, that he likes it. Are you saying then there was no conflict between you two at any time? Was there no conflict between you two at any time? None. Wow. So you were happy. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> so then, were you then happy with the result? Oh yeah, I loved it. Yeah, it I think, I th and I think Scott's ending is is a real winner, because my ending is strictly a book ending. It's a, I don't, it, I don't it's it's a line, but it's not even. A line of dialogue. It's just what he's thinking, I think. And uh, no, this is a, this was a wonderful idea for the ending. Well, in fact, the ending of the book is exactly, I think, fucking endings are harder than they look. <laughs> it was my favorite ending, <laughs> but, but it's not visual. <laughs> but the, the irony is, in the new script for his new novel, I couldn't come up with an ending, and I called him up. And he came up with a great end. <laughs> what is, has the new one been cast yet? No. Has the new one been cast no. yet? No. No. Uh, Davido, I guess, will produce it. Is that yes. right? Yeah.
the casting was so great in Get Short. Yeah. yeah. And the green shirt there. Uh, yeah, since the, this is a character-driven piece, Scott, um, at the end, at the end of writing the screenplay itself, as people were cast, you go back and pull, you're such an embarrassment of riches in the character. You pull it as, like, Gene Hackman got cast, and then Renee Russo, did you add yeah. change things? The question for Scott Frank is, uh, once the casting had been done, Gene Hackman and so on and so forth, did you go back and, was it any of it sort of reshaped at all to fit the particular people who had been cast? Yeah, a little bit. For example, Renee Russo, in the script and in the book, she was no longer a working actress but she really wanted to come out in some ridiculous outfit and show that she was just so sick of doing this. She just was a way in for her. She just didn't feel like she'd be doing nothing. She wanted to be a working actress and be in a stupid, stupid B-movie. Also, what we did uh, during rehearsal is everyone sat around with a copy of the book. And if anyone had anything that was their favorite line or something that they felt was cut out of the movie, we would, we would all talk about it. You have a question? No. Oh, I. Oh, so you have a microphone. Okay, good. Uh, I, I just I'll wait for a question. I, I one of the passages that I just loved in the book was again that business about writing a script. All you need to do is and so on and, and uh, it's it's wonderful. <laughs> I don't know who that was. That was from the book, I guess, and yeah, it showed yeah. up in the movie. That was in the book when yeah. the the limo driver, uh, co uh, cocaine dealer says, we can redo the script, we can rewrite the script and fix it up and put in the things it needs. And he says, all you got to do, and then Chili says, well, do you know how to write a script? And he says, yeah, but he says, all you got to do is, you know, you write down the scene, what you, what, what you see, what, you, what it should be, and then uh, you give it to somebody to, co to uh, put in the commas and shit. <laughs> A lot of scripts I've seen don't have the comments. <laughs> <laughs> Just the shit. <laughs> okay, uh, questions. I can't, everybody's stunned in the silence spot. Here it is, over there. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, Scott, what's, what's more time-consuming, writing an original screenplay or adapting, and why? Uh, writing an original is much more time-consuming because for me, anyway, all good stories come from character. And if you're adapting, you're given the character right there. Um, and so far, the only things I've adapted have been things where we've kept the, the character. So it's much, much easier. And, and again, I think part of what makes a great movie are great moments and great dialogue. And in a book, a lot of times, you're, you're given a leg up on that. Your job is really about making it cinematic, about restructuring and realizing it in, in, in a way that's, that's a movie. Writing original is just hell and painful and terrible. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did you watch a lot of movies as you were growing up? I mean, you oh, do yeah. have this in in your in your books. I mean, I think that you can see the influence of the movies in sort of shaping scenes and so on. Yeah, I think I was inspired as much by movies as I was by books. I read all the time growing up, but I, and also I went to the movies all the time. And I used to when I was small when I was around. Uh, say fifth sixth grade we'd come back from a movie captain blood say and then i would tell the movie over again to my friends we'd sit on the steps in the apartment building and i'd tell movies that were er errol flynn movies were the most popular uh, charge of the light brigade and so on yeah but i think i think more and more the novel today it's very hard to find novels that are not in some extent influenced by the movies. I think it's impossible for a novelist not to have been 
affected by the movies, yeah. Yeah. and hopefully for, for good results, you know. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay, here's a question over here. The dark guys. How long does it take to get a green light from a producer after you after you finished the script? And, uh, yeah. Well, we, I finished the script, and it was interesting because when I took the job, I'm, I'm notoriously slow when I write original scripts, and they said, you have to write the first draft of this script in 12 weeks. Otherwise, we're not going to give you the job. TriStar said this, and I said, all, all right. So I wrote the script in 12 weeks, and they took six weeks to read it. <laughs> and I thought it didn't bode well for the future. Um, the next draft we turned in, um, I'm not even sure all of them read it. They, they were never really behind this movie. I think Danny DeVito uh, had a deal where they, I think he muscled them into buying this movie, and the executives there really didn't like it. So when we did the drafts that I was contractually obligated to do, um, in one week's time they put this movie, Pulp Fiction, and Quiz Show in turnaround, all at the same studio, and kicked them all loose. Um, we, we then were rejected by every studio in town except MGM, who was actually very enthusiastic about it and really wanted to do it. And we were, a lot of it was subject to casting. They really wanted to know who was going to be in it. And one thing I neglected to mention is that when Danny DeVito bought it, initially Danny DeVito bought it to star in as Chili Palmer, um, which would have sort of changed the meaning of Get Shorty. <laughs> made it less ironic than it is now. And um, I never believed that he would ever actually play the part. I just could either I didn't believe it or I didn't want to believe it. But we, we actually had a read-through of the screenplay uh, with pretty much the cast that was in the movie, interestingly enough, uh, and he played Chili Palmer in the read-through. And if you were listening, he was a great Chili Palmer. Uh, but what happened was he decided to go off and direct another movie and wasn't available, was only really available to take a bit part, do a, kind of a, a big cameo. So we began looking for, for actors. And at one point, Dustin Hoffman wanted to, to play Chili Palmer for a few minutes until he realized the book was about him. And no longer... He thinks it's about him. He thinks it's about him. So he begged out. And then Warren Beatty wanted to play the part for a little while. And met with Barry Sonnenfeld and said, I, just have, I have one problem with this part. And that is... If, the guy, if I play Chili Palmer and the guy looks like me, why would he be such a low-level mob guy? <laughs> <laughs> to which Barry Sonnenfeld replied, Well, you know, Warren, I have a really good-looking plumber. <laughs> and that ended his wanting to be involved with him. <laughs> and then uh, Stacey Sher saw a rough cut because they were also producing Pulp Fiction. And she saw a rough cut of Pulp Fiction and saw John Travolta and said, You guys, this is Chili Palmer. And the studio saw the rough cut and felt the same way, and, and that was that. Elapsed time of how long? Uh, two years after the script was done. Wow. Uh, amazing. Yeah, I have a question from Mr. Leonard. I wondered what authors he likes to read. What authors do you like to read? Yeah. I like, I read a lot of short stories. I like Andre Debus an awful lot. Uh, Raymond Carver, Bobby Ann Mason, um, I'm reading right now, I'm reading uh, a 
big, heavy book. I, I, it's too heavy to br bring on the trip. About the uh, Sepoy Rebellion in, in India in 1857. I'm also re doing a lot of research, reading a lot of books on Cuba 100 years ago, because that's what I'm writing. Uh, you did mention a name to me that, uh, just in your field, somebody that you like a lot, a name that I'd not heard before, Stephen Hunter. You, uh, oh, yeah, Stephen Hunter. He's, he's really good. Uh, Dirty White Boys is one. I, what's the name of the new book? Uh, Black Light. Yeah, it's really a good book. Okay. Right. Have we done it? Am I missing a hand any place? No. <coughs> well, what a terrific evening. Thank you very much. Thank you.